and you, it's oh sorry blah, blah, blah. you go <laughs> <laughs> oh the joys of virtual technology hello and welcome to making waves with me rowan henthorne and me aaron ibanez so in this series we'll be exploring all things ocean and talking to the movers and shakers the ocean explorers and the characters that are driven to make a difference in this watery world so drop in and join us for this six-part series of stories from the sea We got here eventually. Welcome <laughs> to the penultimate episode of Making Waves. Yeah, for this series anyway, and we um a casual six month hiatus between episodes, but we're back. Um I'm very happy to be back. You went travelling and we just kind of have been trying to get an episode out, but it just hasn't quite happened, has it? And maybe it's taken a second lockdown for us to to uh, get ourselves into gear. Yeah, second lockdown and a second chance, I suppose, for us and everyone else to reconcentrate and refocus on the things that you care about and the things that you may want to change in your life I guess yeah and actually we were just talking about this before we started recording the episode of it you know we called this episode evolve and um that kind of came off the back of the last episode um which was reflect um as we were kind of going into our first lockdown then um and then on the other man we were very fortunate and have a six-month period of, of no lockdown, um, so it was kind of, let's do an Evolve episode about how we've kind of changed and what that lockdown has taught us, and I don't know um, about you, Ivo, but um, I definitely kind of didn't do any of the things that I said I would do, um, you know, about slowing down and taking more time for myself and kind of went back to life just as normal, and it feels like um, the second lockdown is a sharp reminder of, of, of the fact that we need to do that slowing down and that evolving and growing and changing. What do you think? Yeah, I think personally starting with ourselves and on an individual level, there was a lot of idealism as to how we were going to be different once we came out of it. And I think for all its hardships, one of lockdown's main successes, I guess, was this discovery or, or rediscovery of the natural world for, for many people and the idea of becoming more aware of our impacts. But I think on the whole, and I don't want to sound too cynical, but I guess this is this is hindsight, but because of that fatigue and what felt like an endurance test, really just waiting for normality to, to return, um, I think what prevailed was just was wanting the, the normal that we lost and, and life to just go back to, to how it was as opposed to, you know, the, the, the change that maybe lots of people envisioned. Yeah, the fact that we are now back in a second lockdown, I I personally am really going to try and um, introduce a little bit more of that slow down and conscientious living. I mean, I'm trying to be as conscious as possible, but... um. I guess that's where that evolve comes into it because we have to remember that we are sharing the planet with so many amazing, incredible 
you know, awe-inspiring creatures um, and lots of tiny ones that we have absolutely no idea about. Um, and maybe part of this episode is about um, encouraging us to evolve and raise our awareness um, of that fact. And that kind of brings us on to our, our topic today, which is talking to um, Dr. Emily Duncan about um, sea turtles, which are like the most incredible prehistoric creature um, that have just roamed our oceans for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you know, back to, I don't know, I can't remember the exact figure I had it before, and I think we mentioned it in the episode, but really ancient creatures, and we have evolved at such a speed um, as a society that we are risking and threatening their existence. Um, and I think our next level of of evolution is realizing that we are part of nature and we need to create space for all these incredible creatures so that we can all evolve and live together in the future. And so that's kind of what the episode's about. And um, and actually, that takes me on to wanting to dedicate this um, this episode to an incredible woman called Emma who spoke to me about loving the podcast a little while ago and you know I should slap myself on the hand because she was like get that next episode out and we've been incredibly slow but yeah this is this is for you Emma and I hope you enjoy it. So for those who don't know you and love you can you tell them what what your sort of job is what do you do? So I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Exeter, um, but I'm based down in Penryn in Cornwall. So I get to live in uh, beautiful Falmouth and I did my PhD at the University of Exeter looking at um, the impacts of plastic pollution on marine turtles. And I've done a lot of other work with marine turtles and um, and I've sort of gone on after my PhD to work in more broad projects to do with plastic pollution. So um, there's one based which is uh, Mediterranean wide um, that I work on and another one where we did a whole expedition up the Ganges last year. Um, it was unreal. That Yeah. <laughs> Are you allowed to talk about that one now? Are we allowed to chat about that? Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, all the way from the sea in Bangladesh uh, and trek to the source of the Ganges in the Himalayas. And that was with National Geographic, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a National Geographic uh, seed source expedition. What, yeah. what was it like? What was it like doing that on such a uh, trip? It was amazing, um, but also very, uh, very fast-paced. We only had three days in every uh, location, every sampling location. So there was a lot to get done. And um, some of our work required me to get up incredibly early. And um, yeah, and then we had sort of really long journeys in between, um, either on sort of tiny buses or trains or, yeah, boats. (laughs) So yeah, it's quite a surreal time and a massive contrast to this year. yeah and what's it like obviously being being asked to work for national geographic does that sort of put your your work and your profession into perspective that obviously it's like wow this is a big deal i'm on a serious bit of research here yeah i mean for me national geographic's always been in my life such a massive like entity really and to be asked to work for them was yeah a huge 
huge achievement for me and I felt very honoured to be part of um, this expedition. It was a female-led expedition and just with some of the um, most incredible scientists but also photographers and video makers um, from National Geographic as well so uh, met some really inspiring uh, women as well on that trip as well. And what was the sort of aim? You wanted to see how plastic pollution was travelling down from source to sea. Is it was that what the aim of the trip was? To see how that yeah, was impacting so, communities. Yeah, so um, really to see the inputs and sort of flows of plastic through a big river system, um, and try and look at that from sort of all different angles. So I was part of the water team, so a lot of our stuff was based directly on the river or um, surrounding fisheries. And then there was a land-based team looking at waste management. And then we also had a big uh, social science component. So working with the local communities to understand sort of their use of the material. So yeah, it was a really holistic project in its approach and also sort of on a huge scale. So yeah, it was very ambitious, but we did it very well, I think. Amazing. And how are attitudes changing towards plastics in, in places like India? Because, I mean, I don't know if they get much imported waste into India, but I know that they've used a lot of single use in the past. Is that sort of, is that changing? Is that mirroring sort of our, our changes in, you know, how we feel about single use plastic? I think there's a long way to go in, uh, in terms of uh, education around the material and, um, general management of it as well um, in so many different aspects Um, and it was really positive to work with some uh, researchers from India and Bangladesh who are now going to take the work of the project on further and to kind of next steps and uh, policy level work as well so that's really encouraging. I am I've had the pleasure of not actually swimming in the Ganges, but I have um, stood on the Ghats at Varanasi um, and I couldn't get over the colour of the, the river, it being so, almost like a radioactive green. It was like something out of a cartoon. Um, and you mentioned, obviously, the way the, that the communities interact with it. Obviously, it's a very sacred river. They use it to wash themselves, their clothes, um, and only up um, from where I was standing was a funeral pyre. So... So once bodies had burned, the remains were then basically left to, to float in the river. So it's got quite its uses. I mean, did you see much of that? Uh, yeah, so um, we got to go. One of our sites was actually Varanasi. Um, and yeah, I mean, I feel so grateful to have been able to go there. It's such an amazingly powerful place. I was working, we were working with fishermen fishing in that river as well. They've got a big initiative now to clean up um, the Ganges um, because it is such an important river. And uh, I think that's why uh, National Geographic chose it as its river for these expeditions, because it's really important in in a number of different ways. So to highlight um, the issue of plastic on it was really important. Well, from the from the Varanasi River, we I suppose we we want to speak to you really about your, your specialty, which is which is turtles. I guess, where did that sort of start for you? So I did my undergrad actually here at the University of Exeter. So kind of came to Cornwall and um, fell in love with the sea and uh, the work at the university here and haven't really left. Um, so I, I first volunteered um, 
in Cyprus on a marine turtle conservation project out there, which is run by um, two of the academics that I actually still work for now. Um, that's where it really started and um, sort of my love of fieldwork started, I suppose, and being out there um, and yeah, love of turtles. They are, they're just amazing animals. I always describe them to people as sort of like modern day dinosaurs, if you ever see one, um, especially when they're on the beach. Um, they're just, ama it's amazing to be able to work so closely with such amazing uh, animals. Yeah, I was reading before that they, you know, they've been around for sort of 220 million years and you just think that's just crazy, especially when you think about our, you know, impact and, and your field of study, which is like the impact of, you know, our plastic pollution on them. And they are such an ancient prehistoric species, like you say, you know, like dinosaurs. And we've got to do our best to make sure that they're still around for another couple of million years you know <laughs> yeah it's one of the reasons why um plastic pollution along with many other things at the moment really highly impact them because they're such an it's a really ancient animal that and their life cycle is very long we, we we still don't know how long sea turtles live for it it could be over 100 years could be more and recent really recent work from um australia has shown that they actually might only start to come to breed when they're about 40 years old so previously that thought was uh, 10 to 20 years so it it could be even longer yeah plastic is really novel and it's been introduced into the ocean in such a dramatic way that they'll really find it hard to evolve um, to learn not to ingest it um, not to become entangled in it and um, yeah and not to nest um, all around plastic on the beach so that's why it's it's such a big problem and trying to work out exactly how they're impacted um, is really important at the moment. So what other threats do they have to sort of navigate in their world? Um, so there's, there's a lot. Um, so we have a climate change, um, which affects them um, because the sex of their offspring is temperature dependent. Um, so if all our beaches get too hot, um, all of the hatchlings will be female, and that's uh, really bad for the populations. It also causes sea level rise, which um, destroys nesting beaches. Um, another really big problem is um, bycatch in fisheries. So um, many sea turtles get caught um, in longline fisheries um, all around the world um, and other fisheries. and. Um, that's a large source of mortality for them. Um, yeah, there's numerous threats. Uh, many people are trying to work on um, mitigating and managing at the moment. We, you know, I mean, people kind of often think of turtles as a tropical species, don't they? But we actually get them all around the UK as well. Am I right in thinking that? You know, not in such high numbers, but I mean, I think I've heard reports of like the odd leatherback going through the yeah. Irish Sea. Yes, we do get leatherbacks, uh, turtles around the UK um, because they can sort of semi-regulate their body temperature, um, unlike the other species of turtle, um, which rely on external temperature and therefore sort of stay in the tropics. Um, but their le leatherbacks will come all around the UK and um, especially if you see the big barrel jellyfish in, um, they really like those. So they'll be um, going around and eating those and 
last year actually um there was a leatherback turtle off uh pendennis here and um all of us turtle team were up in the office and um couldn't didn't get down in time to see it which is quite sad for us but um yeah yeah because they're yeah, so huge they, aren't they they're amazing yeah i think um it was actually um one of the academics um children was out on their kayak and saw this huge sort of sea creature <laughs> and um got, and they'll uh, never very... forget that experience as well will they no. that'll stay with them for life no and oh, it's so, so amazing um and i mean yeah and we've in cornish waters and of course around you we We've also got some other amazing animals, um, like all the dolphins and the gannets and uh, a lot of uh, tuna, um, which are incredible to see as well. Um, so very rich waters, very lucky to have it. The, the reason we sort of know each other is because we went we went on that epic trip across the ocean. But, you know, we, we did some research for some turtle biologists in Hawaii, didn't we, that were trying to sort of figure out. Because, I mean, there's so many amazing people studying turtles, but there's still so much we don't know. I mean, you know, touching on that point you made about the Australian scientists thinking that they don't, they don't breed until they're 40, that just kind of blows my mind. But we still don't know a lot about what happens to them in their early years, do we, while they're growing up? So, no, um, it's one of my focuses of um, part of my research that has been based in Australia, um, but similar reason why me and Rowan ended up on a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean um, (laughs) was marine turtles, yeah, leave their nesting beach. And um, basically the thought is that they end up in uh, open ocean currents, sort of right out in the middle of the ocean as really small turtles. Um, And this used to be called the lost years, um, in sea turtle biology speak because we had absolutely no idea what happened to them until they came back um, into coastal waters. So that's why it was such an amazing opportunity to go out into the open ocean that far and uh, look at the habitat. We've got a really uh, wide ranging science program. So we're looking at plastics in the water on the surface. Um, We're also looking at toxins in the water. I mean, we all felt on the boat every trawl we did it was just unbelievable how much plastic uh, we pulled up and you would just look out and it would be like pure blue ocean but actually it's just kind of um, a soup of plastic and these turtles um, are quite opportunistic and indiscriminate in their feeding so they will eat anything they come across and they will just think that that is food Um, and I've looked at many in Australia that have unfortunately eaten a lot of plastic and they're very tiny so I think it's an important area to focus on in the future. I think it's hard for people to believe um, who haven't necessarily studied plastic pollution actually what's out there. It seems that whenever we talk about the ocean it always seems to stem back to obviously human impact and the, the, the growing problem of plastic and obviously that's kind of what brought you guys together on the boat. Rowan, I suppose that was your experience as well, wasn't it? That that sort of description that Emily used there of, of the soup. Yeah. That sounds quite sinister, really. It's not what I have in, in mind of a sort of Pacific cross, crossing, you know, to, as Emily described, you expect open ocean and the deep blue. and. But I think that, for me, that, that is the most sinister aspect, is that it was so blue. Like, you would look out and it and it looked as you're describing mm-hmm. um, and obviously there were 
you know, hundreds of recognisable items around the boat all the time. And you could, but to a large extent, it looked like this blue expanse of crystal clear blue water. But it wasn't until you put your nets in the water that you realised that it was. It was like a smog that we were sailing through for like two and a half weeks. And you just can't really get your head around that, especially when you know that the plastic is all floating at different, you know, it's all different densities. So it's floating throughout the water column and a huge amount of that's probably at the sea floor and you just think my god what we've done to this to this world in such a short period of time mm -hmm. you think that turtles are around for 220 million years humans have been around for 200,000 and in the last what 100 200 mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. what we what we've done so yeah. i guess a question for both of you is then i imagine that will have been quite confronting to see that and, and 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 be on board what were the sort of motions that you were going through were you, were you feeling disheartened or what and what and what did you do to keep your spirits up <laughs> uh, <laughs> we went through a range of emotions didn't we, Dunkers? <laughs> yeah me and rowan um lived in a little cabin together that we called the science cave <laughs> well we and we thought we thought at the start because we took we went to the boat early because um we had to drop off a load of scientific equipment um before any of the other girls had got on board and they said yeah you're you guys are bunking together in your own room at the at the bow of the boat at the front of the boat and we're like oh dunkers we've we've been given preferential treatment here <laughs> we are we're really like we had the two scientists and they've given us our own room we are top dogs we've made it we've really made it <laughs> and then yeah only a few days passed before of of living on the boat before we realized that actually the boat the room at the front of the boat is the roughest place on the boat to sleep yeah. and it's definitely not any preferential treatment no and we lived with all the science equipment and just permanently damp I think I would come in from my watch and I'd like look at you and you'd be covered and surrounded by like beakers with your with your sleeping mask on and you'd have all your foul weather gear like you'd half take it off and I'd just be yeah, like how I... do you sleep like this <laughs> yeah I, I think I just started to nest in my bunk with all the science stuff around me um but yeah I think I feel incredibly happy to have met Rowan um a very like-minded and similar humour to me. So um, we kept our spirits up that way, I think. Yeah, I, I think on an expedition like that, silliness is hugely important. But I think also in our field, being silly is really important because you're dealing with some incredibly depressing, worry, you know, worrying things on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you don't manage to have a little bit of silliness and light-heartedness... You just, the, the weight of it would be too much... Yeah, bear. and sometimes it is too much. Like I remember, I remember coming into your little breakdown, Dunkers, and <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you, at the nickname Baby Bullfrog because she was just scrunched up in her bunk, and she's like, "I've had quite enough of this." <laughs> what, just yeah. your fellow crew members, or, or oh, I think I'd not slept very well, and I mean, just dragged up another load of plastic, and we were beginning to get near Canada, so we were cold and <laughs> down. Yeah, we all had our, our down moments and and yeah. te tears and snot and crying and booing, but yeah, I guess that's what's joined us together now. Joined in yeah. snot and silliness for life. Yeah, <laughs> and that's it. That's a, that's the key to a happy scientist, apparently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what you need to keep going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Woo! 
I mean, you're the most incredible scientist, but I remember you always joking on the boat that you're always half into a really smelly dead turtle and that's where your happy place yeah, is. Yeah, sometimes I, I feel like I have carved a niche for myself um, <laughs> to go around and look at poo, um, <laughs> which is, I've been to some amazing places doing it, but um, sometimes I do think, oh, I could have done satellite tracking or... Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't change what I've done. Um, I think you just need a, yeah, not a very good working nose or just get used to it. <laughs> and you see in the news a lot, um, you know, that idea that turtles eat plastic bags because they look like jellyfish. And, I mean, is is that true or do they do they eat other plastics because it looks like other food, food types? Because obviously not all turtle species eat the same prey, so... Um, how does that sort of vary between turtles? Yeah, so um, this was one of my uh, PhD papers. Yeah, looking at uh, diet selectivity. Um, and because each species of sea turtle has a very different diet, and I don't think that's relayed to the public so well. So uh, leatherback turtles, um, they do nearly exclusively uh, eat jellyfish. So therefore, they might um, eat a plastic bag because it looks like a jellyfish. I did a study on green turtles and uh, out in Cyprus, which mostly eat seagrass. And we actually showed that majority of the um, plastics they were ingesting were sort of um, long and thin in shape. And they were green, sort of brown and black in colour. So uh, more closely related to seagrass than, say, a jellyfish. So I definitely think there's some sort of selectivity there and to what type of plastic they might eat, depending on what species they are, which just makes everything more complicated (laughs) just what we need (laughs) a bit more complexity to the issue i'm just thinking emily obviously a lot of your work obviously is very hands-on um but just sort of away from the lab and perhaps the scientific context what is an encounter like with a turtle you know just sort of unfettered in the ocean can you sort of recall any any moments you've had just naturally in the in, in the wilderness of the sea so probably my most amazing experience is um, on Rain Island in Australia um, on the Great Barrier Reef, which is sort of this small island with loads of amazing seabirds in the middle and then turtles nesting on the outside and then pristine barrier reef surrounding that. Um, and it's I, it's probably my favourite place on Earth or one of Um because so many turtles nest there. So you will walk along the beach and there'll be 500 or thousands of turtles up at once. And it really is quite a spectacular sight. And I've also seen them in the in the ocean around the barrier reef. And yeah, they're so uh, gracious and move so amazingly in the water. And then on land, <laughs> they're completely different. And they're sort of, I do think they do look like dinosaurs walking around they're very ancient looking creatures yeah just trying to do what they've done for millions of years really what do you think they think when they see a human I mean when you look at one in the eye what do you think what do you think they think of us I don't really know it depends what age they are sometimes they're a bit more skittish than others I mean turtles don't have massive brains (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I'm not sure they'd be like enough to be curious 
Yeah, in some are more scared than others. We had this turtle that we nicknamed Woodlouse in Cyprus, who never managed to nest because whenever you went up to sort of watch her do anything, she'd just make it back to the sea as quick as she could. And she was quite grey in colour, not very green, so we called her Woodlouse. Um, but she was very startled. Sometimes they don't react at all. Um, when they nest, they go into a sort of um, hormonal trance, so um, they really they don't see you. Um, and they're sort of just solely focused on laying their eggs. So that's you can get pretty close then and do what you need to do. Wow. And um, in the, you know, David Attenborough's in Planet Earth, they showed, was it Planet Earth or Blue Planet, where they showed the baby turtles that were hatching on the beach and then heading towards the artificial light that sort of we'd created in in beach resorts. And is 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 that sort of a significant issue? And is that something that people are trying to find solutions for yeah so it is um, a massive issue I, I actually did my um undergrad uh, project on light pollution um and turtles that out in cyprus were definitely affected um i wandered around with a uh homemade um wooden protractor from my dad <laughs> to measure all these hatchling tracks and um yeah, when there was an artificial light that would be on at night, um, they all went sort of the wrong way. It's quite sad. There's certainly a lot of initiatives to um, switch off lighting or switch to different um, lighting um, to help them. So, yeah, that's another, especially on very built-up areas right next to the coast. Yeah, because you imagine actually the solutions to that are, are, are really simple and that's, you know, right the social science part of things and, and, and building that connection between people and nature is so important because uh, that doesn't take a lot of complex... I mean, it takes science to understand the issue, but then in terms of solutions, it's it's pretty simple and that's why it's so important to to harbour that connection with nature, I think, isn't it? Yeah, so um, people could come and visit and um, look at the turtles in Cyprus nesting and um, sort of come and do a hatchling release, so any hatchings that we'd got out of the nest that hadn't got out um, themselves and um, to see people's reactions um, when they get to see an actual turtle is is just amazing and especially I I find it really interesting to see the children and chat to them Um, some of them are so passionate about turtles and probably tell me as just as much as I know um, which is absolutely lovely and it sort of is their absolute dream to see a baby turtle and put it um, to run down to the sea. And I think that connection can last um, for, for a lifetime really and um, really motivate people to, to do something. And I think that's also why plastic is, it's really, people have kind of latched on to it as a problem that they can, they can make a difference to, which I think is great because it's, it's very visual and you can see the effects from what you're using at home to what you see pictures of in the ocean or pictures of in turtles. And I think it's a kind of great flagship to talk about other marine issues as well. Yeah, um, I kind of like to call it the gateway. It's like the gateway drug, the gateway yeah. environmental issue to, you know, issues that are harder to kind of communicate, get your head around. And I mean, it's got, they've got such, it's such a simple simple but complex solution you know if we reduce the amount of plastic that we use and we design things better I mean that's what was so amazing about the trip across um the Pacific wasn't it that we had it wasn't just scientists so we we, you know we had product designers filmmakers teachers um 
and actually one of the most powerful things of being around the table with all those incredible women and talking about the solutions and realizing it's it's not just about the science that's a really important part but it, everybody's got a role to play in 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 finding solutions to these issues I don't know if you felt yeah. the same yeah I did feel the same I also found this felt the same on um, the National Geographic uh, expedition just because um, we were very driven looking at the science of the impact of the water but a lot of um, the scientists there were engineers, waste management um, experts, and also we got to spend so much time in the communities. And um, really, it's the engagement of everybody, every single person into this issue. And yeah, that was really um, valuable um, to be able to do that and um, to talk to people about their lives and talk to people about the barriers to not using so much plastic or yeah, the barriers to sort of change. I've sort of uh, I've just done some training in social science actually because I believe that um, to be sort of a good conservation biologist if that's what I am I um, I need to be able to understand that human aspect and be quite interdisciplinary so um, I really enjoyed that that's been a good bit of lockdown training for me I think that's so it's so important and and understanding people and I think it's easy to blame people or you know humanity and think of us um as like these kind of gross species that have had such a horrible impact but actually if you if you look at true human nature and what people are really like and really start to understand human psychology you kind of start to understand that we have such great capacity for change and it's not that we're doing things you know we've gone down the wrong path of consumption and um but I think there's a huge amount of hope lies in fostering that connection with nature and, and under, understanding people. And, you know, we've spoken about this before, but not blaming each other for problems and just kind of starting to find solutions and working together. Yeah, really working with the people that live there on the ground and live, kind of live there every day. And, um, yeah, I'd really like to do that um, more in the future work and give them really the power for the solutions and empower them. Um, to make the change and then it will be more long-lasting and sustainable. So you've been to so many amazing places and done some incredible expeditions all over the world. What is the scariest moment that you've had while you've been on? Oh that's quite um, scariest. I think I mean we had that big storm in the Pacific um, right near the end. Yeah that was pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, getting waken. I mean, I didn't sleep that night, and then getting woken up at um, four a.m. after hearing the sea all night, sort of raging, and being like, "Oh, it's my watch, and I've got to drive the boat now." Um, and actually, you know but- what was scary about that was the fact that Imo, the skipper, um, she'd like check the weather every day, and she thought that we didn't know that she had been tracking a really big, big storm. Um, you know, and it's like black on the surface pressure charts. She thought that she'd been keeping it from us, but we all knew that she was keeping it from us and we knew exactly what she was keeping. And the fact that she wouldn't tell us, but she'd told us about all the bad weather beforehand and there'd been some seriously bad weather. That was the terrifying bit. I was like, oh my God, why is Emma not talking to her? This must be really, really bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's been bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's also my favourite morning though. I mean, I remember I was driving at like these... I've never seen waves, the sea look like that. And the waves were just so big, weren't they? Yeah. And um, 
to see the sunrise over that and just felt so remote and it was just so amazing to be out in the open ocean like I think about it all the time and to be actually sailing a boat like we would like we would be on the helm we would be sailing a boat and you think there's 6,000 metres below you, huge waves going over the top, because we'd have these foul weather gear. But if you were dry, if you were, had the wheel of the boat, these huge waves would wash over the entire boat. And it's a, it's a 72-foot boat, it's a huge boat, and it would go down your sleeves, wouldn't it? Because we had, like, oh, quite baggy collars. Icy. <laughs> icy down to the armpits, and you'd be like, but you'd have to hold on, otherwise you'd lose <laughs> grip on the wheel. But that went, but it was funny, and that's why I found it, you know we were all laughing. We found it hilarious, and like reflecting back on that, I just think we must have lo- slightly lost our minds by that point because everything yeah, I mean, was, it was hilarious. It was near the end. We had been away from civilization for quite a long time, but I always enjoyed that element of um, expeditions and field work, just being so in it and so in a new location, and sort of. I really missed that this year. Actually, I had. A few trips cancelled. Um, yeah. Yeah, same. Yeah, I just have that lust to be out and having that adventure again. Yeah. How yeah. how how's that? Obviously, you mentioned lockdown before. I imagine it's been quite frustrating. But on on the other hand, you you mentioned obviously you you, you took to learning the the sort of social science side of things. I mean, where you are in Falmouth, have you got a good view of the sea? Have you, are you within access to it? Yeah, I'm really close. I can walk to it, um, and I feel really lucky to still be able to sort of connect to it in that way um I always gravitate to it um um and especially during lockdown to get out and be able to look at some sort of open horizon was really amazing it it, it's been hard for everybody I think one of the major aspects I love about my job is all the people I work with and I haven't seen them in five or six months unless I bump into them sort of in the supermarket with a mask on (laughs) I miss that and I miss um, being able to travel and connect with people around the world, really. Yeah, I bet. And, I mean, it's it's a challenging question because I guess a lot of people aren't quite um, emerging from from lockdown yet, but what would your hope be um, if people have had a time to sort of reflect and potentially think about how they want to grow and evolve um in the future and you know taking into consideration these amazing prehistoric creatures that you have dedicated your life to study um you know what would be your wish and your hope for people to sort of take in and in terms of looking you know thinking about these creatures in our natural world um i think many people after the lockdown um probably realize the power of nature and um from their sort of daily exercise and um, probably felt, I hope, um, more connected to it. And this was the case for me as well, just before um, lockdown, that the pace of life of the entire world had got incredibly fast and um, there's no time to sit and reflect about what we're doing. We were always acting, rushing around. I mean, I was up and down to London every week for meetings and, yeah, going all over the place. And there was not much time to connect to nature. But I hope that in lockdown, everyone kind of slowed down from that pace of life and really started to um, appreciate what was around them. Um, Just even if it was a local park or a view of the sea or something. And therefore, I hope as we sort of move and pass and grow from this experience that 
we start to prioritise things in a slightly different way and everyone starts to think about looking after our planet and um, that can only positively impact the turtles that have still been swimming around and doing their thing during this time. That's sort of my hope <laughs> for the future.